Okay, so if you look on your handout, um, we're continuing with the Reformation era, uh, still in the beginning stages, uh, kind of going over um, the doctrines that led up to the uh, Reformation. Uh, last week, if you remember, we went over church government, uh, some of the, the errors that uh, took place uh, over the course of uh, 1,500 years in that area. We went over humanism. Humanism really wasn't something that, that was something that uh, took place over 1,500 years like some of the other ones we went over. Kind of started more around kind of 1,200, 1,300-ish, uh, but still was a big uh, problem uh, that uh, led to a lot of the corruption of the Renaissance era and was one of the, the um, things that the Reformation was correcting. Uh, we looked at idolatry, um, which was a huge problem throughout the Middle Ages, and then we started on uh, some of the big areas in the area of uh, what is known as soteriology, which is just a fancy word for the doctrine of salvation. Sounds super fancy. It's not that uh, big a deal or that complicated. It's the doctrine of salvation. All right. Um, this is my famous or infamous uh, salvation chart. I started on this last week. I talked about how the early church fathers you know, were, were definitely off, and it led to a lot of serious problems down the line. But for the most part, sometimes we can be really hard on the sort of pre-Reformation uh, church. All right, In a lot of ways, they were, they were pretty close. And again, this shows that despite some of those errors, despite some of those problems, God's always had his people. He's always had his church on earth. Um, and they were sometimes closer than we tend to think. But even those small errors, as I talked about, grew and festered and got bigger and bigger and bigger and more and more problematic until we get to the time of the Reformation. Okay, So we talked about... Um, they didn't use all of these identical terms. I don't want to make it out like these did. A lot of these terms were fully formalized at the Reformation period, okay? Uh, but they did have a basic kind of covenant of works understanding, all right? That Adam and Eve, all right, uh, uh, started out here, all right? And all of us were connected to Adam and Eve in some sense. The church fathers certainly didn't have nearly as strong or robust of a doctrine of original sin as we would as Reformed Christians, but there was a very strong belief that there was a connection between us and Adam and Eve. Their sin passed on to us, all right? That when Adam and Eve sinned, we are all born, okay, in a state of spiritual uh, death. Some would say it maybe kind of comes on later on in your early toddler years or early adolescence or whatever, but everyone said there is a sense from a very young age in which you are sinful, you are corrupt, and that that, is a, that connects back to Adam and Eve, okay? Um, they understood, okay, that Jesus Christ had to come and fulfill, okay, this covenant where we blew it, all right? That was the uh, uh, primary work uh, of Christ. Obviously, he did a lot of other things. Uh, he preached, he taught, he did miracles, he showed God's love, he revealed God fully, so on and so forth. But the primary thing he was called to do was to save his people, all right, which is always been the doctrine of the church. All other kinds of groups try to say, you know, it's more about this, that, or the other. The early church and all the way through the Middle Ages always understood that the focus of the work of Christ was uh, his work of salvation, all right? Um, they understood that there was a sense in which the punishment that Jesus underwent, okay, was uh, in order to take our punishment. Uh, he took our punishment in our place, and there's a sense in which his uh, uh, punishment is imputed to us. Now, again, they were not super right on as far as their theories of the atonement. They're not as far off as sometimes people make it out to be. The ransom theory, there is some truth to that. There is some truth, even from a Reformed perspective, that as part of our spiritual death, we are under the yoke of Satan. God, uh, God gave us up to a sinful nature, but he also gave us up, okay, to the dominion of Satan for uh, as Satan and the world sort of tempt us and they sort of light the fire under our sinful nature, okay? And they understood that the work of Christ uh, negated that, all right? But they did put too much of an emphasis on that and there was some unbiblical elements, all right? 
We talked about the biggest error, and I think it started out somewhat small and vague and hazy, but it led to a lot of problems, was in this area. Now, we did talk about the church fathers, in, in, in our opinion as Reformed Christians, had a leg up on, on modern-day dispensationalists. They got that, that um, when we accept Christ, we don't just come back to here. I mean, there is a sense in which we're given spiritual life, okay, uh, so on and so forth, but that you also have to have um, positive righteousness. Or you have to fulfill the law of God for God's justice to be fulfilled and for you to be given eternal life. All right? We would say, as Reformed Christians, that that is fulfilled by Jesus himself. So it's totally by faith. It's totally by grace. Modern-day evangelicals, especially in America, would say, no, you have faith. Uh, Christ, uh, um, the punishment that he took in our place, takes away this, you go to here, and somehow you magically, that makes you here. It's eternal life. This whole part is sort of skipped, all right? And that, is, in my opinion, is, is a biblical error, all right? The early church understood that. The problem is, as opposed to saying, where does this merit come from, coming from Jesus, which is the correct answer, they said there was a sense in which we had to merit that ourselves. Now, the emphasis was always on, mer- uh, uh, excuse me, on faith and grace, that Jesus Christ um, gives you spiritual life as a free gift. You are spiritually dead when you accept Christ by faith. You come here, you are now renewed, and the Holy Spirit gives you the strength, okay, to get to here. And they said at every point, as long as you have faith, as long as you're trusting in Christ, you can know you're going to go to heaven. You can know God will make sure that you uh, do enough good works to get there, all right? Now, is that unbiblical? Is that wrong? Absolutely. And it got worse and worse and worse, okay? But again, I think that's heterodoxy. I don't think that's heresy because, again, they were trying to work with the biblical data and the emphasis, okay, especially in the early church and especially with guys like Augustine and later Aquinas was always on faith and grace, all right? But again, as I said, by the time you get to the Reformation, the emphasis is starting to become more and more on this, your personal um, merit before God, all right? And that is when things get really bad and really out of control, okay? I thought I saw a couple hands up. Did I maybe... Not okay. Um, all right, very good. Uh, next thing I want to go over, still connected to soteriology, okay, is what is known as the penitential system. <clears throat> now, same thing, like I said, all right, it started out small. It started out as, you know, they, it, not horror, I mean, I think it was biblical error, don't get me wrong, but not super, super way off, but then it developed and developed and developed and developed until it got worse and worse and worse, all right? The penitential system, okay, was basically started out, okay, as uh, early church discipline. And obviously, as Reformed Christians, we would say there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, we believe in church discipline. One of the biggest critiques of Reformed Christians of a lot of uh, sort of modern-day American evangelicalism is that there's not enough church discipline. That people can come and go to church, okay, including members or people who come on a regular basis, even if they're not a formal member, they claim to be a Christian, all right, and they you get involved in gross heresy or gross sin, and the church doesn't want to deal with that because the church tends to be, and again, I'm not trying to be too harsh or critical, but I'm just trying to be honest, very obsessed with the numbers game, all right? A lot of churches, it's all about how many numbers are in your church. That is the measure of a pastor's success, which is never, ever given as a measure of a pastor's success in the Bible, okay? But that's sort of become sort of this new litmus test in American Christianity, okay? So, again, we're not against church discipline. So there was a sense in which the church fathers were trying to be biblical here, all right? And what was, if you guys remember from one of my earliest classes, what was the biggest issue as far as church discipline goes in the early, early church? What group was a big problem that the church was trying to kind of grapple with as to we don't want to be too harsh, 
All right, but we don't want to be too lax. Do you guys remember? The lapse. Okay, very good. All right. People who did not uh, um, uh, stick to their testimony all the way to the last little uh, last leg. All right. Now there was all. We tend to think there was people who either were the, the martyrs and they stuck, or there was the people who the second they were arrested, they were like, "I'm not a Christian. Don't arrest me." That's just not the way it was, all right? And that's never, if you've ever been in ministry, all right, that's never the way things are. It's always a lot more gray and a lot more difficult, and you have to take each case um, and a case-by-case basis, all right? There was people who, who went through horrible torture, who made it a long ways, and eventually would just, you know, have a, a moment of weakness. They'd have a Peter-type uh, moment, all right? And they would be known as the lapsed, all right? And the church said, we don't want to just kick out the lapsed, all right? A lot of them went through... a uh, um, far more suffering than Peter did, and we know that Peter, you know, had a moment of weakness, all right? So there was a sense in which if they wanted to be received back into the body, they, the church wanted to receive them, but at the same time, they didn't want to make light of Christ's words, you know, that, you know, you've denied me before men, I will deny you before the Father. They wanted to make sure there was some discipline there, okay? So this discipline, okay, began to be known as the word that they used, the theological word that they used, was the word penance, now, I know as Protestants, we hear that word and it's like flames want to come out of our ears, okay? Because there's, there's a long history there, okay? But in the early church, it primarily just meant church discipline. And there was a legitimate sense uh, of uh, there needed to be some discipline. Uh, and some churches, I think, were way more harsh than others. Some were more lax. But I think most churches in the early era were trying to do a good job of not being too harsh and not being too lax, okay? And so there was this sense of where you had to do um, now, here's where I think they probably went in a little more unbiblical direction, okay? The reform, we would say, church discipline is mostly being willing to subject yourself, okay, uh, uh, to the decisions of the elders, and that if you are um, willing to do that, there should be a season in which you are not allowed to partake of the Lord's Supper, all right? That is the primary discipline that we would see as given in Scripture, all right? What started to develop, though, in the early church, again, because remember, the early church is in its infancy, not all scripture, not all the depths have been plumbed yet. There was a sense in which they thought you needed to do some sort of works, all right, as your, as your penance, okay? So sometimes you would have to go out before the church and, and, and you know, say prayers and uh, tell people that you were of the lapsed, so on and so forth, all right? And bef- before we get too harsh on the sort of early church, okay, uh, let's not forget that what, what Protestant group tended to do some of these similar types of things? Does anybody know? Puritans, very good, okay? Uh, you, you guys ever heard of the Scarlet Letter, which is totally not a great book. Don't get me wrong. So it's it's very very anti-Puritan. It's very biased. I don't recommend it. But there is some truth to the fact that the Puritans actually would do things like that. Okay, where you'd have to wear a letter A or whatever. Okay, sort of to indicate uh, that you had committed adultery or something like that. So again, it's not just a, a Catholic uh, or medieval type of issue. All right, but they had to do these sort of works of uh, of penance. All right. And, and make sure you keep that in your mind, because I'm going to talk a little bit more when we come back to indulgences, how that connects back uh, uh, to all this. All right. Now, at this point, there's no concrete doctrine of purgatory. There were some theologians who sort of vaguely talked about, well, what if you die before you've been, had a chance to fully fulfill your church discipline? Some said, well, you know, church discipline is for this life, which is the biblical answer. And then, you know, if, if you die in faith, you go to heaven. Some said, well, no, we, we agree that if you die in faith, you go to heaven. But this is really important. We, we really, you know, this is, this is important. We don't want to negate God's justice, okay? Um, and they said, if you haven't fulfilled your church discipline, there must be some sense in which you must fulfill that before you go to heaven. And that's sort of the beginning stages of purgatory. And again, it didn't happen overnight. It wasn't like in 100 AD, 
there was this fully-fledged doctrine of purgatory. But there was this sense in which this church discipline sort of needed to be uh, fulfilled. And we'll talk about later how that develops into this fully-formed doctrine of purgatory. And by the time we get to the Reformation, the doctrine of purgatory is just out of control. I mean, there's just no nice way of, of saying it. Okay, But that's sort of how this kind of all um, uh, developed, Okay, with this penitential system. <clears throat> Give me one second. I've texted myself a list that I wanted to go in order here, so we'll make sure... Okay, the next one would be indulgences themselves. <clears throat> Once you get to the Middle Ages, there was this sense in which, okay, based on some passages, especially in uh, uh, 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 5, okay, um, where they thought that it seemed that the church had the authority, all right, to lessen, okay, somebody's penance, all right, that you could, the church can give out church discipline, but there was this sense in which it seemed the scripture was saying, the church had the, the authority to uh, show mercy, okay, and say, Here, here's what your penance sh uh, should be, but we also are willing to lessen it to some extent, all right? But there was also this sense in which they said, based on God's justice, and remember, God's justice looms large over all of this, even in Protestant theology, okay, that they wanted to say God doesn't just sort of sweep things under the rug. Remember, all right, that's what the cross is all about. It's about mercy and grace, but it's also about justice, God doesn't just give us forgiveness, okay, like in most other religions. There has to be expiation, okay? God's justice must be met. And so there was a sense in which, well, we want to show mercy, but what is that based on? Does that make sense? Okay, what is that based on? All right? And so they began to say that you could do an indulgence was, so to speak, kind of like a substitute, okay, um, work that you could do, okay, that was not as harsh that you could do to substitute for a more harsh church discipline. Does that make sense? Okay, so just to give you an example, in the Middle Ages, let's say your priest said, uh, you know, you'd committed a pretty serious sin, you confessed it, all right, and your church discipline or your penance was to mop the church floor, okay, for two months, all right? But you wanted to do something else, okay, and the, 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 the priest had the authority, okay, to say, well, all right, if you go out and you give alms, all right, then you no longer have to fulfill that uh, penance. Does that make sense? Okay, and that was sort of the beginning sort of, Phase, uh, fuzzy, hazy kind of stages of the indulgence doctrine. And as we'll talk about, it, like all heterodoxy, it grows, it grows, it got worse, it got worse, it got worse, okay, until by the time of the Reformation, okay, it's really, really out of control. Now, later on in the Middle Ages, they developed a doctrine, okay, um, that there was partial, okay, and then there are plenary indulgences, <clears throat> Does anyone know what the difference is between a partial and plenary indulgence? Okay, think of partial, and what do you think plenary probably refers to? Okay, complete. Yeah, that's what the word plenary means. Full or complete. Yes? Pre Vatican II, the Nuns give us a heavy class. This is 60 Sure. They have on there, say this prayer this many times, and this can be plenary indulgence. Yep, yeah, exactly. People, that's, thank you, Ed, that's so important. People have this idea that the Catholic Church has gotten rid of indulgences, all right, that it is not a doctrine. That's not how the Catholic Church works, all right? They can't get rid of doctrines, all right? And according to Roman Catholicism, Rome never what? Never changes. I don't, I, don't, I couldn't totally hear what everyone was saying, but yeah, Rome never changes, all right? Now, they will say Rome changes in the sense that it discovers more doctrine. It, it sort of unveils more. It understands more, but they would say at its core, Rome never changes. The church cannot err. Does that make sense? So again, they can say we cleaned up the doctrine of indulgences. We got rid of some bad preachers and stuff who were preaching false things. 
But the doctrine itself, once that's a doctrine's been established in Catholicism, they can't just magically get rid of it. Does that make sense? Okay, it's very different than Protestant denominations, where we can say, hey, Presbyterians, Presbyterian denominations can and have erred, and in some cases have erred very badly, and we go back to Scripture and correct ourselves. That is a doctrine that is very foreign to Catholicism. So indulgences are still a part of Catholic theology uh, to this day, okay? So they would say you could do an indulgence and it would take away part of your punishment. That was a partial indulgence. Or you could do an indulgence and it would take away the fullness of your punishment, all right? Now, that didn't mean you might not have punishments once you move forward because you're always going to continue to sin, so to speak, all right? Um, uh, so, but it just meant whatever punishments that you've had up to that point, okay, can be taken away, all right? Now, the next thing, important thing to understand about the penitential system, okay, is this, diff uh, this difference between mortal, okay, and venial sin. Now, again, I know these are all doctrines that make us bristle as Protestants, and they should. They make me bristle. Please don't get me wrong. But uh, the point I'm trying to get at in all this is most of this stuff started out small. It started out oftentimes with good theologians who were trying to resolve a problem, and they resolved it badly. They resolved it unbiblically. And it should be a warning to any of us who teach or preach or write or anything. It's a scary thing because a tiny error, okay, even if your motives are good, can become big and can grow and can fester, all right? And we've seen that happen again and again in church history. And I'm going to go over, okay, later. Protestants have not been completely free of heterodoxy either, okay? We're going to talk about, okay, uh, later on. I think the biggest heterodoxy in Protestantism all right, has been prejudice. I mean, that, that honestly has been a core part of Protestantism going all the way back to Martin Luther, and it's been something that the Protestant church has struggled with very, very deeply, all right? And it's taken us 500 years, okay, to try to work that out and fully correct that, and I don't think we've completely arrived, all right? And that's an uncomfortable thing to talk about, but that's an essential part of Protestant history, whether we like it or not, all right? So again, it's not, Protestants are not immune to this, all right? Mortal venial sin, does anybody know what problem early church theologians were trying to grapple with? Any idea? Let me give you a hint. Christ takes away the full punishment of our sins, right? We all believe that, okay? And yet, in the Bible, post-salvation, is there any sense in which God punishes us or disciplines us? Yes or no? Yes, the Bible absolutely teaches that. And you have some tension there. Are you guys with me? All right. And I think Protestants have done a much better job of resolving that. Okay. But I'm just saying the fact that that tension exists, all right, was something that early church theologians were trying to grapple with. All right. And the way they answered that question, I think, was wrong, but at least they were trying to answer the question. All right. So basically what they said was, okay, is that um, all mortal sin gets two types of punishment. All right. There is temporal and there is eternal. Temporal refers to this life, okay? A punishment that you have in this life. Eternal refers to hell, all right? Pretty straightforward. Venial sins only get what type of punishment? Temporal, okay? Venial sins, okay, are lesser sins, all right? Now, I'll be honest, again, going back to the fact of the idea that, that as Protestants or evangelicals, we can never err, I think a lot of American evangelicals make the mistake of, I don't believe in mortal and venial sin, just I'll say that as a preface, okay? But I do think, all right, this idea, that it's become very common. You, you'll hear this constantly. I even had a couple people at this church ask me kind of about this for my sermon last week. They're saying, so wait, there's degrees of punishment in hell, all right? 
the traditional Protestant doctrine, and I believe it's the biblical doctrine, is that there are degrees of sin and there will be degrees of punishment in hell. And I could give a number of passages uh, to that effect, okay? But a lot of American evangelicals have this idea. I hear it all the time. Sin is sin. Every sin is equally heinous, okay? And everybody in hell will be in exactly the same place under exactly the same punishment, all right? And I think, okay, even though the Catholic Church got this wrong in the Middle Ages, I think on some level they were closer, at least in their initial stages, than to a lot of American evangelicals. Because there really is, all right? I don't think that we should say stealing a Snickers bar is as bad as murder. Now, I'm not making light of stealing a Snickers bar. Don't get me wrong. Sin is sin, all right? In the sense that all sin deserves hell, all sin deserves punishment. It's not something to be trifled with. But I am saying, I, having said that, I just don't think, okay, that that sin should be compared, okay, uh, 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 to murder or rape or something like that. I just don't find that to be biblical, all right? And neither did the early church, okay? All right, now, did they take it way too far? Yeah, we'll talk about that. But there was a sense in which lesser sins, not like no biggies, all right? That's how a lot of Catholics will interpret that today. These are like the, the, like, the like, God doesn't care about sins. That's not how the early church saw this. All sin was very serious, all right? But they said these are the lesser sins, okay, uh, uh, that uh, do not deserve eternal punishment, all right? But mortal sins, okay, are all like the really big sins, or they would say deserve temporal and eternal. And they would say Adam and Eve committed a mortal sin because of how much knowledge they had. They had every opportunity being in a state of perfect righteousness to obey God. Their sin was a mortal sin, all right? And that is why we went from here to here. Okay. All right. <clears throat> now, uh, as far as the um, uh, uh, the penitential system goes, okay, if you committed a mortal sin, okay, you were sort of on the path, you were doing your 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 works, okay, through the help of the Holy Spirit, and if you committed a mortal sin, okay, what happens to you? Where do you go? Okay. Yeah, you're back here. Boom. Okay. All right. And then you have to go and do formal penance, not just like daily. You're supposed to sort of you know, pray for forgiveness and stuff. You need to go to a priest. You need to confess that. You need to receive absolution. All right. And then you need to be brought back onto the path. Okay. Venial sins. Okay. Needed to be confessed. All right. They needed to be repented of. You needed to sort of give yourself a penance, so to speak. All right. Uh, but they did not bring you all the way uh, back to here. Okay. All right. Indulgences. Okay. Um, and you had a temporal punishment. Okay. For your venial sins. All right. Um, backing up just a little bit, when you first got saved, all right, they said that Jesus, okay, the cross takes care of your eternal punishment for all of your mortal sins, okay, and it takes care of all of your temporal punishments for your mortal sins and your venial sins up to that point. Now, here's the tricky part. They said after salvation, all right, when you commit a venial sin, all right, you, okay, not the cross, you have to take care of that temporal punishment. Now, they say, Jesus and the Holy Spirit and the church help you with that, but it is still you who have to actually take care of that venial sin, all right? And this is where indulgences come into play, all right? Whatever temporal punishments you have, all right, um, can be wiped out by these indulgences, either partially or in a plenary fashion. If you commit a mortal sin, okay, when you do your penance, Jesus takes care of the eternal punishment through the cross, but you have temporal punishments. So as you're going along in your Christian life, okay, you have to take care of the temporal punishments that are left over from any mortal sins that were committed after salvation, all right, um, and all of your venial sins. Does that make sense to everybody? You know, this gets a little bit complicated. And this is bad stuff. I get it. It's bad stuff. But please try to remember the early church was trying to grapple with this idea that there are uh, 
different levels of sin, all right, and they were trying to answer the question, how do we answer this question of why does God punish us post-salvation when everything is done with by the cross? And their answer to that, okay, is yeah, the cross deals with our eternal punishment, okay, and to some extent our temporal punishments pre-salvation, but it's different after. And that's how they reconciled those passages about God punishing his children post-salvation, right? Protestants, okay, we would answer this, and I think this is the more biblical answer. We would say that God as our judge, done. Cross, wiped out, over, done. It's all over, all right? And to whatever extent God disciplines us now, it's simply because he is our father, and all discipline we receive as Christians is only for our benefit to draw us closer to him. It has nothing to do with God's strict justice, all right? Which, again, I think is a much more biblical, much more sound answer, all right? But again, it took development. It took the Protestants to look back on 1,500 years of error to sort of really grapple with that. And not surprisingly, uh, does anyone know who really sort of resolved that issue? It might not be who you think. Your initial answer might be uh, Martin Luther, but it really wasn't. Martin Luther still kind of struggled with this question of penance, all right? Does anyone know who kind of really sort of helped the church get past this? Yeah, John Calvin. Yeah, okay, very good. And that was the case with a lot of things with Protestant theology, okay? Martin Luther sort of got the train moving, corrected a lot of things, but Luther could still be very Catholic in, in certain areas, and John Calvin was really the main theologian who cleaned up a lot of this stuff, all right? He might not have been the most exciting person in some ways, but man, John Calvin, okay, if you get a chance to read the Institutes, we'll go over him, uh, just just so sound, uh, and not only just so sound, but just so had so much clarity in seeing so much of this development and being able to really grapple with it and say, what does the Bible really say? And he was so systematic in, in putting it all together, all right? Okay, so um, that's indulgences. That is the uh, penitential system. Uh, real quick, next one I want to go over, okay, would be the sacraments. <clears throat> sacraments are also very important in Scripture, and the church took them seriously, all right? In the Old Testament, I don't know if you'd call all of them sacraments, but most theologians would say at the very least they had a sacramental character or they had a sacramental uh, aura to them. All right, Basically, physical things that God uses as symbols of uh, his grace. Does that make sense? Okay, and you see that all over Scripture. All right, and the New Testament, okay, what are, according to us as Reformed Christians, what are the two sacraments? Baptism and the Lord's Supper. And do those loom large in the New Testament? Absolutely. They are extremely important. All right, these are not like background type thing. So the church understood the importance of sacraments. But there was this sense in which, what are the sacraments? What's not? Because there's some things that seem kind of symbolic and might be sacraments, all right? And there was also this sense in which the church had a hard time really saying there's only two because in the Old Testament, there's so much symbolism. There's so much ceremony. There was this idea that there cannot be such a stark contrast between Old and New Testament, which, by the way, is sounds fairly Reformed, okay? One of the emphasis of Reformed theology is that we see more continuity between the Testaments than do most evangelicals, all right? And there was a sense in which the early church was trying to emphasize the continuity of the, the Testaments, but again, I think they took it too far. So, but there was a sense in which, because of that emphasis on the continuity of the two Testaments, they didn't, the idea that there's only two sacraments just did, sort of rubbed people the wrong way. So there was this push, okay, to have more rather than less, all right? 
And until you get to sort of the late Middle Ages, it just kind of depended on the theologians. Some said five, some said seven, some said ten. I mean, it, it was it was sort of not this super um, agreed upon doctrine, all right? But by the time you get to the late Middle Ages, okay, there is an agreement, okay, that there are seven sacraments. In the East, all right, a lot of what I'm saying is really kind of mostly Western theology, all right? Um, in the East, they do believe, and they did believe in seven sacraments, but they also said there were other things that were sacramental, all right? Real quick, I don't want to spend a ton of time on this, but something that's important to understand in church history the Western church tended to be much more technical, much more legal, all right, uh, uh, much more logical, much more kind of like detail-oriented. The Eastern church, and this is a dichotomy you will see to this day in Eastern Orthodoxy and Roman Catholicism, tended to be much more loose in its theology. And I don't mean that in an overly critical way, although I would disagree with them on a lot of things. They emphasize a lot more mystery. Don't try to answer every question. Leave things sort of open-ended, all right? And that's, that's a, a sort of two streams in church history that you kind of need to understand, okay? So they, the Eastern Church to this day would say there's seven sacraments, but they're not quite as specific and rigid on it, all right? Um, also, I should say, okay, indulgences is purely a Western doctrine, just so you know. Never was in the East to this day. Eastern Orthodoxy sees this whole concept of indulgences as just bizarre, all right? There was never a doctrine of purgatory in the Eastern Orthodox Church, okay? If you remember from last week, all right, church government, very similar, but the Eastern Orthodox Church has no cardinals and it has no uh, uh, pope, okay? On the mortal venial sin, yeah, you'll kind of have that to an extent in Eastern Orthodoxy, but it's not quite as uh, specific. But they do believe that you have to merit eternal life, although they shy away from the word merit and they use more of a word known as theosis, which I'm going to get into in just one minute, okay? All right, um, and the penitential system is present in Eastern Orthodoxy, but it was never as rigid or as detailed as it is was in the Western Church, okay? Does that make sense to everybody? All right, um, very good. Okay, the next one I want to go over is celibacy. And you might be like, wait, why are you including that in soteriology? That makes no sense. Trust me, okay? Once I explain this, it'll make a lot more sense. It absolutely, in medieval theology, was part of soteriology. It was The two were absolutely uh, connected, all right? They developed this doctrine, okay? Um, <clears throat> again, trying not to be too hard on the church fathers, but being firm biblically, there was a sense in which, all right, there was so much sexual immorality in the Roman Empire. There, if I even spent a half an hour on how bad, you think our society is bad? I always hear people like, it could never get worse. And I'm always like, okay, you should probably crack open a history book because trust me, it can get a lot worse, okay? All right. Um, uh, I could go over the sexual immorality of the Roman Empire for half an hour and I promise you some of you guys would want to go to the bathroom, okay? I mean, it, is, it was really, really bad, all right? And there was a sense in which the New Testament, or excuse me, the Bible, okay, um, uh, uh, is, is so opposed to sexual immorality in such stark terms, all right, there was this sense in which the church sort of slightly freaked out a little bit, okay? I mean, it went a little too far. And there was a sense in which celibacy was seen as sort of the highest uh, 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 calling as far as in the sexual sphere. They said, look, you can get married and there's nothing sinful about that. And certainly we want people to get married and have children. We want the church to propagate itself but there was a sense in which celibacy was seen as a much, much, much higher calling, all right? And you might be like, what on earth does this have to do, all right, with uh, a soteriology, all right? They developed this doctrine that saints, all right, were the primary, uh, that if you wanted to be a saint, 
99% of the time you had to be celibate. They said there's exceptions, but they are really exceptions to the rule. If you wanted to be a saint, okay, you needed to be celibate. And because of that, developed the doctrine of celibacy in the uh, um, clergy. All right, clergy were required, especially in the West, not quite as strictly in the East, but especially in the West, you had to be celibate. All right, and there was a big fight in the church. Not all clergy agreed with this, but by the time you get to the high Middle Ages, it is established dogma in the West that you had to be celibate, all right, and the monks and nuns uh, uh, were celibate, all right? So you have this doctrine, okay, that celibacy is its highest calling. Now, I'm going to get it later, we get closer to the Reformation, but talk about why this caused huge corruption and huge problems, all right? But now let's get into the saints a little bit and, and this connection to celibacy. There was this idea that saints not only merited eternal life, they actually did what? Does anybody know? They didn't just get to this line. They what? They what? There you go. They went beyond the line. Okay, so here's the line. Your average Christian does their works. They get to heaven. Okay, saints go here. Okay, and there was this sense in the church of like, how do we fully explain indulgences? On what basis does God grant indulgences, okay, according to his justice, all right? And they said, there must be some merit involved. You can't, God can't just hand out, okay, his mercy. And so there was this said, where does this extra merit come from, all right? If I'm doing my stuff, okay, and God lessens my punishment, he does it on what just basis? And they said, he gets it from this extra merit, okay? And that extra merit goes where, all right, according to later medieval theology. And here's where it starts to just... It starts out slow, starts out bad, but here we're starting to really get off the rails, okay? All right, and that's what happened. But again, it didn't happen overnight. It was over a thousand years of slow development. By the time you get to the high and especially late Middle Ages, okay, they said all this extra merit goes where? Does anybody know what it's called? Treasury of merit, okay? Now again, it's not a literal treasure box in heaven with little nuggets of merit, okay? And I'm trying to be fair. to I always try to play devil's advocate. I try, always try to be fair to my opponents, all right? Uh, they don't mean a literal treasure, but they mean in sort of God's mind, so to speak, this extra good works, this extra merit, okay, goes into this sort of like bank in God's head, not in any kind of literal way, all right, that he can then apply to people, all right, okay, and that is the grounds or basis for indulgences, all right? Now, other than Jesus, they said Jesus, who's obviously, you know, the top dog, he had the most extra merit, and that goes into the treasury, and all the saints' merit, but who had second to Jesus the most merit? Remember who? Mary. Very good. Okay, we're tracking. Mary is becoming more and more the emphasis in medieval theology, especially in the West. She had the most merit. So they said there's just more than enough merit, okay, to go around, all right? <clears throat> By the time you get to the late Middle Ages, okay, coming back to the penitential system, purgatory is in full swing. Okay, there was a sense in which you, if you have not met all of the temporal punishments, okay, uh, for your sins, all right, even if you are in a state of grace, you are saved, all right, you are holy and righteous, God has changed your nature, all right, um, and you have merited heaven on some level, all right, but you have not dealt with all your temporal punishments, okay, you have to go to this literal place, okay, where you have to be punished, all right, which was called purgatory, but... God could lessen your punishments in purgatory based on what? Okay, but those prayers are you're beseeching God to give people that mercy. But what is the just grounds for that mercy? Okay, treasury of merit. That's where it comes from. Does that make sense? Okay, all right. Now you might say, why don't the saints have to go to purgatory? 
They have so much extra merit that they not only merit eternal life, but some of their merit goes and it erases the temporal punishments for their sins. All right, so they don't even have to go to purgatory. And they still have leftover merit, which then goes into the treasury of merit. Okay, so again, like I said, it starts out small. It starts out with theologians trying to answer biblical questions. And before, you know, after a long time, we're really starting to go off of the rails. Okay, now to be fair to the Eastern Orthodox Church, they're still pretty off. A lot of this stuff was in the East, but again, just remember, no purgatory, no indulgences, no treasury of uh, merit, all right? Just to be fair to Eastern Orthodoxy, all right? But most of this other stuff is still present. Yes, sir. Uh, Fantastic question. Once I get through all these, I'm going to talk about that. I'm going to absolutely get into the connection. And there is a very concrete connection. It's not even sort of vague. We're sort of trying as Protestants. I mean, we're, we're going to talk about that. Excellent question, Chuck. Okay, let me uh, get to the next one, and then I'm almost done with these. All right. Uh, the next one is the doctrine of theosis. Now, this doctrine was present in both East and West. But unlike most of these doctrines that I've been saying were, were more present in the West, this is the one exception that was more present in the East. Okay? Does anyone have any idea what theosis means or refers to? Any guesses? What's that? Yeah, it's, you, are, you are sort of being absorbed into God on some level. All right? And I want to be real clear. This doctrine did not develop until much later in the Middle Ages, at least not in a full sense. All right? And you start to see how bad things are getting. I mean, they're getting really, really off. All right? That is far more similar to what religion than biblical Christianity? Does anybody know? Hinduism. Excellent. Hinduism. And Hinduism, over a process of multiple reincarnations, okay, karma, all that stuff, eventually you are sort of reabsorbed into Brahma, who is God. Even though, technically speaking, you already are Brahma. I've never understood that. I've never gotten a good answer from any Hindu on that point. But that's, that's Hindu theology. You are Brahma, but in some sense you're not Brahma, and you get reabsorbed into Brahma. I have no idea how all that works. I've studied Hindu theology. I've tried to figure that out. But sort of like the East, okay, they are very much like, just don't, just leave it alone. It's mystery. Don't try to figure it out, okay? Now, to be fair to the church, they weren't saying you become God. Uh, better theologians tried to sort of make strong distinctions, but there still was just this sense, all right, in which you are absorbed into God on some level in this way that you can't totally figure out in what is known as the beatific vision, okay? When you get the full vision of God, you are so connected to God. They would even say you sort of know the mind of God. Not that you become omniscient, but I mean, it's, it's very bizarre. And you guys see, remember I talked about Van Til and his two circles? I know I'm kind of running up, running out of room here. Okay. Within the sphere of reality. All right. Now, again, there's not like complete separation between these circles. I mean, you could sort of put a square around them. If you say that's reality, which meaning everything that exists, whatever is real, Okay, all right, there is some similarities between us and God. We are made in his image, all right? Having said that, what does the Bible emphasize? Our similarities with God or our differences with God, okay? Our differences, all right? As Van Til talks about, within the sphere of reality, okay, there's two circles. There is God, and then there is everything else. There's creation, and you want to be careful, other than some basic things saying, like, I exist, God exists, okay? He has a mind, I have a mind, all right? Others in some basic similarities, we want to emphasize the fact that those two circles are separate, all right, and we need to not blend them. And in medieval theology, through all of this, those two circles are starting to overlap, all right? Because remember, the saints and Mary herself especially are almost godlike, all right? And when you go to heaven, you sort of get in, in, enveloped into sort of this divinity, all right? Does anyone know what the favorite passage was of people who really pushed theosis? Give you a hint. In First Peter, 
Thank you. Very good. Partakers of the divine nature. All right. Again, I think all Peter is getting at there is it's saying that we become holy. We are no longer, we have, have, we have no trace of sin, okay, when we are fully glorified, when we go to heaven. I don't think we need to take one passage, one passage, and press it and literally pit it against the rest of Scripture. That's a very dangerous thing. Scripture interprets Scripture. I admit that's a difficult passage. I admit it's prone to misinterpretation. But again, one passage against a plethora, a plethora of texts that over and over again pound home. You are not God. I am not God. And don't you ever forget it. Okay? I mean, that's the theme sort of of Scripture, all right? And there, that theme was really sort of breaking down. Now, again, as I said, you had this bizarre sort of contradiction in the Middle Ages. On the one hand, they really emphasized the transcendence of God. God was out there. He's distant. He's angry. You can't get close to him. You have to go through all these mediators. But at the same time, they said, once you finally get there, once you get into eternal life, it sort of like completely turns around. You are almost absorbed into God. Does that make sense? Okay. So you had these two polar opposite errors, and in some way, they were sort of both being taught. Okay. And that oftentimes does happen in theology, more than you tend to think. Say, so I kind of compare it to like today, all right? Um, in a lot of dispensationalism, you have a lot of antinomianism. There's a lot of like, you can, you can be saved, you can receive Christ, and you can pretty much go out and live however the heck you want, okay? Uh, they say that's not healthy for you, that's not good for you, you're going to lose a lot of your rewards, but you can technically do that. That's antinomianism on the one hand, that's loose sort of Christianity. But these same groups oftentimes tend to be the most legalistic on practical matters, all right? I mean, don't smoke, don't dance, uh, you know, don't uh, play, don't ever play cards. I mean, me and my kids, we'll play poker. We don't do gambling, so don't, please don't come and yell at me after the, the, the teaching, okay? But I mean, they will say, I mean, even just to play the game, even with chips, not for money. I mean, I mean, you know what I'm saying? There's this sort of like remnant of sort of old Southern legalism in a lot of the, the, the church today, okay? So you can have, oftentimes you can have two polar opposite theological errors being taught by the same camp. All right. And that's sort of what you, you had happening within uh, the Middle Ages. OK, so theosis, sort of this becoming godlike or God-esque on some level was a big thing in the Middle Ages, especially in the East. OK. All right. Now, to get to Chuck's question. All right. How did this all matter? What practical? Uh, 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 how did this lead to so much of the corruption in the Renaissance? Bear in mind, not one of those four things that I went over, okay? Um, church government, humanism, idolatry, or, or soteriology. Not one single one of them led to all the corruption. It was sort of a combination of all of them. Does that make sense, okay? An overemphasis on humanity. Um, there's just all this idolatry. But where soteriology really comes into play, as more and more emphasis is on merit, works, treasury of merit, indulgences, do your penance, okay? All those different types of things, okay? Oh, and real quick, I didn't say as much about the sacraments as I should have. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on them. But there is a sense in which these sacraments, okay, sort of give you grace, give you strength, okay, to live the, the Christian life. Beyond sort of kind of in this Reformed context, like a strength of the Holy Spirit, it's like an actual infusion of grace. And they would even say that in most cases, okay, People are saved, actually literally regenerated by baptism, okay? And if you lose your regeneration, you're re-regenerated, okay, through penance, all right? You might say, well, how does that all play into faith, okay? They would say, look, if you have faith in Christ, you're saved, all right? And if you have the opportunity to be baptized, God will make sure you go and get baptized and he'll fully regenerate you. And they would say, if you died, Aquinas is very firm on this. He said, if you died before you had a chance to get baptized, you're saved. And again, you should read Aquinas, all right? He's really emphasizes, if you have faith, you have faith in Christ, you're going to heaven, all right? So again, he's off on a lot of things, but at least he was really solid on that, okay? But there was this sense in which they said most Christians 
are regenerated through their baptism, okay? And most of it was in their infancy. Does that make sense, okay? So was there sort of this, uh, this emphasis on baptismal regeneration. As more and more of this stuff is emphasized, you had kind of two approaches to all of this, all right? It became to the point where people were like, I can't do all this. Do you guys see how legalistic all this became? All this extra added stuff, all right? And people really began to examine themselves and say, can my works ever really fulfill God's law? And people were like, I don't think so. So as I said last week, it produced a lot of angst in the church. And you had two sort of solutions to this problem amongst the monks and the nuns and amongst the um, uh, the clergy, all right? And this is really to get to your question, uh, Chuck. The one was press in. I mean, just press in. Do those good works. Stop making excuses for yourself. Pick yourself up by your bootstraps and get on that path and do those good works, okay? So you had one school of thought, okay, that was... <clears throat> extremely <clears throat> legalistic. Very, very legalistic. We're talking about the monks and nuns, okay, who really emphasize penance. And this is where penance starts to get really out of control. Whipping yourself, starving yourself, freezing yourself, okay, uh, walking up jagged mountains, doing permanent damage to your health. Very, very legalistic uh, approach to things, okay? When Martin Luther decided to become a monk, which school of thought did he join? Okay, this one. Big time. He joined an Augustinian cloister that emphasized these legalistic elements. The other one, okay, was this sort of antinomian. Yeah, we get this is really hard. I mean, this is like, this is impossible. This is tough. I mean, you got penance, you've got works, you got you got temporal punishments. We get it. We understand. The church is here for you. The church is here for you. Just go and get what? And God sort of works it all out, and it'll all be okay. Okay, go get a what? Okay, <laughs> close but no cigar. Okay, an indulgence. Go and get an indulgence. So you had this antinomian sort of. You can kind of live however you want because at the end of the day, it doesn't matter that much because you know what? None of us can really do this. This is like way too hard. All right, God has sort of provided indulgences. All right, to sort of it's like a get out of jail free card. Does that make sense? Okay. And what indulgence do you think the church started to emphasize more and more? Okay. There was lots of, okay, what's that? Yeah. And the, but they didn't, they didn't want to just call it money because that would come off as very crude. So they called it the giving of alms. All right. But they said, don't just go out and give alms to anybody on the street because you know what they're going to do with that. You ever hear Christians say that today? Okay. Don't give to somebody on the homeless. You, they might go and use it on pot or whatever. And again, I'm not saying don't, I mean, use discretion or whatever, but a lot of times if I'm walking down the street and a homeless person asks me for money and I have money, I'm going to give them money. I think that's the more Christ-like thing to do, okay? But they kind of use that against Christians. They don't, don't give them, they're, they're, they're going to go get drunk. You don't know what they're going to do. Give it to the church and we know how to distribute it properly, all right? And they began to more and more emphasize lots of indulgences, but the primary one was the giving of alms, give it to the church. And before long, it sort of just became this transaction, okay? You give the church money, the church gives you an indulgence, and you're good. Does that make sense to everybody? Okay. And the sort of the emphasis on repentance and confession became less and less and less until basically it was sort of like this transaction. All right. And people um, are really abusing this. Okay. And it leads to all kinds of corruption. All right. I talked about in my handout. I don't have a time to go to a ton of this. Okay. But I just want to give you some of the primary examples. All right. Where especially in the West, although to a large extent in the East as well, but it was definitely worse in the West. Some of the biggest examples of uh, corruption, okay? Okay, one was known as simony. Quickly, does anybody know what simony is? Can you tell me? Okay, simony is the buying and selling of church offices, okay? 
as a clergy member, you could make a lot of money being in the clergy. And a lot of people who were born peasants, you don't have a lot of opportunity, okay, but you could become a member of the clergy, all right, and you could make a lot of money. All right, by doing that, all right? And so that became a way for people to get out of poverty, but they really were not wanting to be godly people. It sort of became a career or a business type of thing. Does that make sense, all right? And you could make so much money that oftentimes you would go and pay uh, uh, the Pope, okay, to uh, be a bishop of a certain area, all right? And then you could set your own salary and the ties. You could set the cost of indulgences in your area, all this stuff. So it's very, very lucrative, all right? <clears throat> Real quick, let me grab my list here. Uh, it was both. It was kind of both east and west, but it was worse in the Catholic Church in the the west. Just want to make sure I don't forget any of them. I'm not finding my list here. I know most of them off the top of my head, but I just want to make sure I don't forget any. Oh well, I have to do my best. Uh, concubinage. Why was concubinage a problem? What did I talk about? All right. You wanted to be a priest or a bishop or a monk or a nun. What did you have to be? Celibate. Okay, but a lot of people are not doing it for spiritual reasons. They're doing it for monetary reasons. And therefore, do you think behind the scenes they're being all that celibate? No. A lot of people took concubines. Now, that was the most common form of sexual immorality. And a lot of priests would feel guilty and they'd only have one concubine and that, per that person would sort of function as their wife. But again, they're not technically married and they're going against vows that they have taken okay, before God to be celibate. Now, sort of connected to this, okay, is sexual immorality just across the board. As I talked about in my handout, okay, a lot of the uh, monasteries and convents just became glorified brothels. I mean, they literally did. Sexual immorality just was rampant, all right? And not just, okay, fornication, uh, um, but a lot of homosexuality, a lot of lesbianism, uh, especially homosexuality in the monasteries. Just absolutely rampant. The church knew about it, and the church turned a blind eye to it. Because, again, they didn't want the sort of political functional elements of the church to be messed with, all right? <clears throat> um, let's see. Uh, absenteeism would be another one. This is basically where you would be a priest or a bishop of a church or an area, and you wouldn't even be present. You would just collect the money, and you'd have other people do your duties, and you'd go off to and vacation somewhere. And that, that happened all the time. Okay, so you literally wouldn't even be doing your job. You wouldn't even be taking care of the flock. You pretty much were just a political sort of pawn in the Catholic system. All right. And you would not even be monitoring. Okay. Uh, your flock. All right. It, it just got to be really, really out of control. And amongst the common people. Okay. Uh, brothels just in general became very common. Uh, uh, alcoholism became very common. Uh, just a lot of, of immorality. All right. And people knew that the church knew this was going on, all right? And the fact that they turned a blind eye to it made more and more people very skeptical of the church. And there's developed this sort of view of things that everyone's so messed up, everyone is so screwed up, don't even try, all right? Pretty much God has sort of provided the grace that you need through these guys, and that's pretty much it. Does that make sense? Okay, so there just became just immorality across the board, especially, okay, in the late Middle Ages in the West. And that is when Martin Luther comes onto the scene. All this heterodoxy bordering on heresy, okay, I mean, we're getting really, really close to heresy, and just very, very rampant immorality, and a small segment of the population, okay, that is trying to do better, but they're going way too far in the other direction, being very, very harsh and legalistic, and Martin Luther joined this camp or this school of thought, okay? All right, I know that was a lot. Okay, next week we are going to dive into Martin Luther, and I am very excited. Any questions?